Be part of an innovative fine arts community immersed in a top research university. Carnegie Mellon University's School of Music's world-class vocal department constantly works at the cutting edge of musical art forms. CMU performance faculty are creating projects that leverage musicians' skill sets in unique and applicable ways. Students are challenged to think outside the box as they engage with non-traditional performance spaces, collaboration with electronics, and improvisation, alongside a robust program of traditional studies, languages, recitals, and operas. To learn more about Carnegie Mellon University and to apply, visit the link in the show notes of this episode. This is So Lit Song Lit, a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we reimagine the repertoire by introducing less familiar art songs through sound clips and lively discussion. I'm vocal coach Ellen Rissinger. And I'm soprano Tony Marie Palmertree. Join us as we explore this exciting repertoire. So Lit, So Lit, reimagining the repertoire. For the last episode of the season, We wanted to do something special. So today we have soprano Jennifer Aylmer, professor of voice at Carnegie Mellon University, with us to talk about vocalises. Now, when I say vocalises, most of us know the Rachmaninoff vocalise or the Ravel, pièce en forme de manera, maybe not much more than that. But there are so many stunningly beautiful vocalises out there, and all of them have something different to offer. So to get started, I wanted to ask Jen, you and Tony, what is the importance of a vocalese? Why do we do them and and what can they teach us? So many questions, so many answers. Um, No, hi, thank you for having me to talk about vocaleses. Why do we do it? Okay, so the singer's musical element, this is me talking as teacher, not a singer right now. (laughs) The, the, The singer's musical element is the vowel, right? That's what we sing on. We sing on vowels. And I would argue that every voiced consonant is also a vowel. If you want to call it a formant, okay, fine. But really, the vowel is our musical element. So I've always argued that the reason, you know, in higher education, when you start on foreign language study, you start with Italian, not because it's a superior language to every other language, I really feel that it's because there's only seven vowels to contend with. So if you can learn to uh, perfect and recognize what the tongue is doing, what your mouth is doing on those seven vowels, then you can begin to add the umlaut. Then you can begin to add mixed vowels in French and so forth and so on. So vocalises from a pedagogical standpoint can be great in figuring out how to articulate these vowels. If you have an issue with an ah vowel, singing a vocalese or singing really any song on just ah with, let's say, a honey drop in your mouth to inhibit the tongue from pulling back and doing nasty things, that can be a great pedagogical tool. So vocaleses, purely from a pedagogical standpoint, can be great to just work on your vowels. As a singer, <laughs> vocalises can be super challenging because if you're not telling a story, then what are we doing here? 
<laughs> that was actually something I was going to ask Tony because, I mean, we've done the Rahmaninoff vocalese together. So when you do something like that, where how, how do you keep it focused? How do you how do you stay steady on that when there are no words? Tony, you take over. I, I, I'm happy to, to pass the baton to you. Yeah, when, when there's no words, all you have is just one long extended vowel and... That is a huge trap for singers because it gives you a chance to listen to the sound of your voice, which is a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, the more that you listen to your own sound, the more you have time to change it. And that's just always a disaster. So, you know, first off out of the gate is it's an exercise in not listening to yourself sing and don't change anything. Secondly, in a vocalese, they're covering lots of different vocal technique things. So you have legato and you have like staccati and uh, you also have um, coverage of like really big uh, parts of your range, you know, jumping an octave, for example, which, you know, you may not have in a song. A teacher can give a student a piece of music that lies in that sweet spot in their range and they're very successful at it. And that's a really great thing but it does not force them to have to figure things out. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why I love vocalises. And the third thing I want to say is this is just a personal observation. I don't know if it's true, but the vocalises tend to hang out in the passaggio. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know why, but they do. And it's just like, you know, the composer just like, ha ha, you know, <laughs> take that. That's assuming that the composer knows the voice well enough to know that there's a passaggio. Oh, that's true. But either way, they, they tend to pick that spot and hang out there. So, you know, <laughs> so it, it does give a really good opportunity. And again, another exercise for the singer to have to figure that out. So, for example, Faure. Faure wrote a vocalese. I did not know that. Not until we discussed this podcast, I did not know that he wrote a vocalese. That's true. I don't know how we don't know this one, because it is so stunningly beautiful in its simplicity, and it's it makes so much music. It is, it's mind-boggling that this is not part of the standard canon. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. <laughs> I was like... What is this vocalese? So he, it says the copyright is 1907, right? So that kind of makes sense because it feels like he's trying to flex a little bel canto in here. Yes. yes. Um, you know, as a, we know him mostly as a beautiful chanson writer for Voight, and he's so good with text setting. So it's, it's interesting to hear this vocalese. If you didn't know it was foray, it, I, you'd be hard pressed to guess that it was. I agree. Um, it, it, I agree. It does feel like a departure in style, and pr in particular because it's so melismatic and very bel canto, very bel canto. Yeah, with so many little like sixteenth note flares and thirty second note embellishments, it's almost there's almost like a little Spanishy flair to it. Exactly. And I would say too that you know we always have this thing like for I didn't like rubato for I did not like rubato you don't do rubato and for he writes it in his score, but in this vocalese because the piano part is static, the singer has plenty of opportunity for rubato. I'll meet you on beat four, Ellen. You know it's like he he really oh it it really feels opened up. I I really I could not tell that this was for Ray. Right. I, until I really looked, I was like, "Wow, this is this is 
amazing. He writes in a largely treble place to accompany the treble voice. Yes. Mm-hmm. And again, that's also super interesting to me because I'm like, there's no real like grounded foundation. Like it's not heavy. It's, it's very subtle and light. It's a beautiful vocalese. Yeah. Well, I love what you said about the piano part because for the first couple of pages, the piano part is kind of static. But then when you get to the last page, it's almost contrapuntal. Yeah. I mean, the piano part has all these six, has, has this 16th note pattern, and it's not the same pattern as what the, the voice has. And they sort of do what they both want to until they come back together again. You have to take your time on that last page. You just have to. You, you can't sing those 32nd notes in time. You just can't. It's it's bel canto. He's writing the piano part to serve the singer. The singer is the driver of this train, and when you have to negotiate those octaves, da 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 da, you can't do those in time. There has to be some tenuto somewhere, and he's giving you space in the piano part by not adding more smaller note values, like just adhering to your bigger note values, so the singer can really just sing. exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> the composer puts these octaves right in the uh, soprano passaggio, and you're working up, not just in these octaves, but then each octave is working up by a half step. Exactly, right? The E, F, F sharp, G. Oh my gosh, like, seriously? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's totally an exercise. I'm going to say, you know, it was done on purpose, but you know, it's an exercise in trying to figure that out. You cannot have any extra weight in the voice and it, it's, it's a great exercise. Well, and especially because you're coming down that octave, but then you have to go back up. Yep. So you really can't let any weight come into it because you get this, <laughs> if you try to, if you try to go back up with any weight. Yes. It's very reminiscent of, let's say, a very famous aria that Verdi wrote, little Caronome, perhaps. Yeah. It it does have hints of that, especially in that measure that we were just talking about. So in terms of voice type, I mean, you you should be a soprano to sing this. Yes. And you should be a soprano of a certain type. I would say lighter is probably better. I know I listened to a recording of Natalie Dessay singing this, uh-huh. and it seemed to really hit her like sweet spot of comfortability. 
it doesn't go super high. I think what is the highest note of G or an A? But that G, as Tony was just saying, has to be light and really in the pocket intonation wise. So for that reason, I would say, yeah, this is, is a delicate, beautiful bel canto-esque vocalese for probably a, a lighter soprano type. Yeah, I I agree with you totally. But I do think that even for singers who are singing like the Verdi repertoire, for example, um, you know, that repertoire requires the singer to jump between huge portions of their range. Like in this particular section that we're talking about, I mean, we are coming out of a fast moving section from like a B natural, low B natural, right, all the way up to the top, the octave starts from the top, and then you have to jump down and back up and and you have to figure out is this chest voice here? Is this a mix? And how am I going to negotiate the scale? And how am I going to negotiate between the octave range? So that would be a really great way for a singer to figure out how they're going to negotiate those different parts of their voice. That scale you're talking about is very reminiscent of the Ravel vocalese. Yes. Dipping down, like, why am I down here? <laughs> why do we go here? And it is to, you're right. You have to, you have to negotiate your way very carefully through that first passaggio, if you want to call it that, um, or just transition area, if you want to call it that. <laughs> How do you do it? Do you keep it light? Do you opt for it in Bois Meeks? Or do you do chest? What do you do? So yeah. Totally. I totally buy that too. Yeah. yeah. And I would say maybe not for a, a real beginner, but for like a third or a fourth year undergrad, this could be a really nice challenge. And it's the kind of piece that would grow with you. Absolutely. And now for something completely different. Copeland has a vocalese and it's in his song album. Now, I've played everything else out of that song album for years, and I never noticed that there was a vocalese in there before. And I'm going to say right off the bat, this is going to be a challenge specifically for someone who's good at eurythmics, <laughs> because the the meter is what really makes this challenging. Just looking at it on the page, I need to parse it out. There are measures of 5-4, there are measures of 4-8, there is a measure of 4-4 four, four and a half, <laughs> which I don't know that I've ever seen anywhere else. But... It, it's so beautiful. And when you listen to it back, you would never know that the rhythmic challenges are there. Mm -hmm. Super pretty. And it's worth noting, because again, when I first started listening to this cold, I too, thank you, Ellen, had never heard of this piece before. Um, I've never played through it, never sang it. But when I was listening to it, I thought, this is so French. Right. And it makes it makes sense because, again, it's copyrighted 1929. We know that Copeland went to study in Paris in 1921. So if you only know Copeland's old American songs or Appalachian Spring or the Tenderland, all of these very Americana sounding pieces, have a look at this vocalese. The French influence, the Boulanger influence is alive and well in this vocalese. I would totally heartily agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So you could pair this with the foray really well, actually. These would complement each other super well. And the same singer could probably sing both these pieces, honestly. Yes. The mm -hmm. scalar quality, you have to have incredible intonation to sing this piece. Yeah, yes. As well as good rhythmic sense. But there's a couple of hairy moments chromatically that are very much on purpose that you need to be 
crystal clear in your intonation. I mean, let's just talk about this cadenza because there's a cadenza in this piece. And okay, it says ad libitum. And I don't know exactly how much license Copeland meant to give us in this. I'm assuming he means ad libitum with the rhythm and not the pitches. Because the pitches, <laughs> because the pitches are super chromatic and they only make sense if you're really dead on. And you have no support from the piano. You're just all by yourself. Good luck. you have to be very solid in your musicianship your vocal awareness and again as tony was saying it does climb into that negotiation area up there so you need to be pretty confident yep uh, right in that spot efg i'm like <laughs> are they doing that on purpose <laughs> well and what i would say for the pianist is that especially in a piece like this we really need to know the vocal line as well as we know our own because of all the meter shifts and also because the piece the frenchness of it means that it feels very fluid there's no heavy beats in it which is you know you would expect with the old american songs type thing it feels much more fluid. There's no heavy stress to it. So it can be, especially with all these meter shifts and the fact that sometimes the voice and the piano are in different time signatures, it can make it very challenging to stay with the singer and still be really supportive without showing them downbeats. Mm. To move on to the last piece that I found, which I was ridiculously excited about, <laughs> Joaquin Turina composed an entire song cycle, Opus 74, entitled Vocalizaciones, which means vocalises. It's a whole song cycle of vocalises. It's amazing. And I would say it gives you every kind of emotion and pretty much every kind of articulation you could want. The first song has these long notes with these big leaps, so you get the real stretch of that. have some that are have faster notes, some that have actual scales, and then turns around in the scales, almost the same way that you do vocalises with your voice teacher when you warm up. you get this super legato, super taffy-esque, almost Puccini-esque phrasing that also brings you up into the top. Mm -hmm. 
And as we go along, we get to this last song where you have these dotted eighth note, 16th note rest, dotted eighth note, 16th note rest. And it kind of gives you practice with that sort of verity and articulation, you know, tenuto with the staccato dot over it. everything that you would want to be in an exercise is in this song cycle and it is still great music Mm -hmm. yes and i think you know if you're a young singer and you only want to do one of these you totally could absolutely it's not like they all blend together and there's no end stopping i mean you could pick the middle section out and just do that yeah i mean i think depending on your personal tempo this piece could be eight minutes to 12 minutes long (laughs) just we're we're just not sure i think it's also interesting in this piece it doesn't specify what vowel you're vocalizing on so you know a lot of you know the stravinsky vocalese for example that's a pastoral he is very specific when he wants ah and when he wants ooh. so you've got this ah moments or ooh ah so this piece does not have that you could probably pick any number of vowels (laughs) what vowel feels best to you and i don't think it would disturb the piece in the slightest. Well, actually, none of the pieces that we've talked about today have given us a vowel. Yeah. Oh, really? I didn't even notice that about the Copeland. Yeah, I was thinking about that as you were talking, because we all seem to think that we have to sing a vocalise on ah, but there's actually nothing to tell us that we have to do that. Yeah. No. And in fact, in the Previn vocalise, which is for soprano and cello and piano, personally, when I've performed it, I've morphed from ah to o to oo, depending on how I want my voice to sound with my cello counterpart. So if I'm trying to do something interesting, um, match their their timbre, I'll close the vowel a little bit. I'll darken the vowel a little bit just to add a little bit more flavor and color to the vocalese itself. So for this Turina, if in the fiery scherzando section, you want to offer maybe almost an E, it, it that could be great. Um, what a great color difference especially coming out of the other sections where maybe you want a warmer color a warmer vowel story an ah or an o um it is a vocalese after all so you're not going to be wrong you're just vocalizing purchase information for all of these pieces will be in the show notes and before we close out for all of the other pieces we've talked about what level we need to have to sing these pieces i think with the turina you could actually start this with beginners or with young singers, because you could take pieces of it at a time. And it does take time to build up to the whole piece. When we're talking about performing the entire set altogether, I think it definitely needs more experience, specifically because there's no story. There's no, because there are no words, you have to create the story yourself. I agree. I think this piece is probably challenge level. (laughs) boss fight level for a young singer but yes on a junior recital on a senior recital certainly a grad recital if you're going to do the whole thing because I think it also is a question of stamina and I don't know about you Tony but like the saliva problem is real (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) forgive me I'm a singer we talk about these fluids that come flying out of our mouths if you're singing a vocalese i i've experienced this i don't know if you have please tell me help me out i i do have moments where i'm like i need to like swallow and reset 
Because oh, vocalises, yeah. you're just singing sound the whole time. And you to take moments to to regroup, they're sometimes few and far between. How do you how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, even just <laughs> I'm just so tired of my mouth and my jaw being in this position. You know, I'm just so tired of being in this ah shape. <laughs> but it is a good way to figure out if you have any jaw tension. Oh, yeah, definitely. You got to check yourself to make sure that I'm even still singing in ah. <laughs> yeah. So you should change the ah. You should change yeah. the oh instead. Amen to that. I do think for that reason as well, like an older or at least a more advanced singer because you want to tell a story through a wordless utterance. So how do you do that? You have to have kind of the wherewithal to stand there, you know, essentially naked Mm. in front of your audience and just have your voice do the work for you. So I think you have to have confidence to sing a vocalese that's this long. I think you have to be very stage savvy and not have the nerves, Mm. (laughs) fight or flight. I mean, because you're not, really hiding behind storytelling here you have to invent your own storytelling or at least be willing to let your voice do that this is the end of season one of so lit songlet season two starts on august 17th and it'll focus on lgbtq plus composers musical performances for this episode were performed by tony and ellen recorded at the camp recording studio in elizabethtown pennsylvania Purchase information for the scores discussed in this episode are available in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find this podcast. So Lit Songlit is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about their network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org slash podcasts. Songlit, Songlit, reimagining the Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org audit.